Um, and, and, oh, I know what I was going to mention. Next week, I don't think you meet next week. Because it's spring break. That's what I thought. Okay. And I just want to make that clear because she's not here today, and so I don't have anyone to. But if that's what she said, then for sure uh, we won't meet next week. Okay, perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, um, it looks like you should have read 201. Now, we started 201 last time. 201 through 212. <laughs> What's that, Jen? Jen's on page 48 right now. Jen's like, Peterson? We're reading Peterson? Christ plays in 10,000 places. Uh, 201 to 212, which was the section on the Holy Supper there. Um, if you got a chance to read it, is there anything that you, that, anything you want to mention before we get started or as we get started? Yeah. You you and about Yeah, I was going to say I was actually going to say 7 million other people, but yeah, you and roughly another million people. Yeah, right. So that means if he's like, he could be right next to us, just in a different thing. And so the supper is his way of connecting the two, mm-hmm. and that's how it's. I, yeah. I, I'm sorry if it sounds hokey, but no. I, you know, when I think about the supper, because I had a hard time believing <clears throat> at first that it was really the body and blood. You're right. I'm right. Well, first, I hate to erase this because probably some second grader did it. Flip it over. It's it's too much work. That's right. (laughs) This is one of the joys of being a pastor. I can erase anything I want. That's about the only thing I can do. But erase anything I want. N.T. Wright, in his book Simply Christian, which has just come out. It's supposed to be the new mere Christianity. Um, He has, at the very beginning, he talks about the intersection between God's world and our world, which is essentially what you're asking about. Because I guess what I'm trying to say is I had a difficult time believing that God, you know how they say God sees everything you do? Yeah. He's not. Yeah. 
Yep. Uh, yeah, don't, let's not talk about laws of nature, because that's a, that's a loser's game. I know. But part of it is to ask the question, what it, okay, well, there's, there's a couple things. First, the question of how or what if is not a question the Lord's prepared to answer. So you remember in John chapter 6, this is just an example of how he doesn't want to answer this question. Then I'll get to your point about the intersection between his world and our world. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to the crowd, the bread I give is my flesh, and the drink I give is my blood. It's called the bread of life discourse in John 6. And the crowds say, how? And I don't, it might be chapter 6, verse 53. How can he do this? And you remember Jesus' answer. He doesn't answer the question of how. The disciples say, they actually say, how can he say that he gives us his, he gives us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink? Jesus doesn't answer the question because it's not a proper question. You can't ask the Lord how he does certain things. So what he does is he simply says, they say, how can he do that? And his answer is, the bread I give is my flesh. And then you remember what happens. At that point, a multitude left him. Okay, a multitude left him. Well, everyone wants to know how. Everyone wants to know how, and the Lord's not ready to give that answer. Now, N.T. Wright, what he does is he says, in his book, Simply Christian, which actually you should all read, um, Simply Christian, it's, the, it's basically like a new mere Christianity, you know, mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, this is by N.T. Wright. And what religion is he? He's, he's the Bishop of Durham in England. He's, the, he's an Anglican Church of England bishop, um, which is, here's, here's why he'd resonate with you, because he's very similar to Peterson in kind of his understanding of certain things. N.T. Wright, Bishop of Durham, the, Durham, the book is called Simply Christian. What he says is, in chapter 1, and the way he lays out this book is, in three parts, the first part is called Echoes of a Voice. There are certain echoes in creation that lend itself to another voice behind it. So even if you're a pagan, you can look at certain things and say, there might be something behind that. He uses community, love, beauty, justice. Everyone wants wrongs to be made right. If someone steals your money, you're going to sue them regardless of whether or not you're a Christian or a pagan. You want your money back. Exactly. Exactly. So he says God's world and our world can intersect in three ways, and historically this is how it's been. The first way... The first way... I'll send the vicar down to get that later. The first way... I'm kidding, that was a joke. No, 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 I'll get it. I got it, I got it. The first way, I'll take it. The first way is where God's world and our world are completely separate. God's world and our world are completely separate. And this is commonly known as, I mean, a multitude of names, but kind of you may know it as Gnosticism, where the spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other. But you know this isn't true because from John 1, he says the word became flesh. Flesh. The second way, historically, we've talked about God's world and our world, is that God's world becomes one with our world. And this is commonly called pantheism. 
pantheism. Pantheism. God's world becomes one with our world. So you look at a tree and say, that tree is divine. You look at a cat and say, that cat has a soul. That cat is divine. You look at whatever. So this is pantheism. You look at, you look at everything in creation and you see that it's divine. Not that it, has, not that it has an echo of the divine, but it is divine. Pantheism. Uh, it's always been there. The third way, and this is this is the answer to your yes. No, it's been around since Adam and Eve. Yeah, it's exactly. Yep. Okay. The third way, then, and this is the one you want to recognize, is God's world intersects and permeates our world. This doesn't mean it becomes the same. It doesn't mean that his world is our world. It means God's world intersects and permeates our world, and this is essentially the sacramental life. So to your question, after reading this about the Holy Supper, what you should recognize is that at the altar... Here's the altar. At the altar, when Jesus comes to the altar, all of heaven drops down. That's why the pastor prays right before the Holy Supper, therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. He's not saying, they're up there, uh, let's get together with them and have some fun. What he's saying is, all of heaven, everything that's contained in heaven, drops down to earth, and circles round about the altar. So your dead relatives, who have gone before you in the faith, actually are right next to you at the altar, which also is why, in some Lutheran churches, if this is the altar, this is often how the communion rail will look, nothing behind the altar, because it was always understood that this room behind here was left open for the communion of saints. Okay? That's true, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change either world. Okay. It doesn't change either world. It's just that when they both come together, it becomes yeah. a new life. It, yes, and you could say that when they both come together, it is in a very real way. It's a new creation. Yeah. It's a new creation. Okay. So that's you're you're on track. The question you don't want to ask is how that happens. Because the only question, the only way you know how it happens is the Lord says this is how it happens. It just, it, right, and there's other things that you, you're not going to ask. Like, you're not going to get into, wait a minute, if, if Cain married somebody, who was the somebody? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really Holly, what do you have? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The question is, um, how does how does yeah? He is, but not in the same way. He yes. He 
He is here, but not in the same way that he's there at the altar. So it wouldn't be fair to say this. It wouldn't be fair to say that the Lord doesn't enter the sanctuary until the Holy Supper. It is fair to say he doesn't enter the sanctuary in a concrete, tangible, bodily presence until you get to the supper. Now, there is a bodily presence with the spoken word. This is my whole PhD. This is what it's all about. There is a bodily presence with, um, in baptism, but it's not the same way that you have the bodily presence at the Holy Supper. And you remember throughout the history of the church, if you, if you know anything or if you grew up in other denominations, you remember that other denominations, the one unique thing about Lutheranism that's not unique in any other church is that the direction for a gift is always like this. Look at any other denomination, and somehow the direction goes like this. So Rome offers up the sacrifice of the Mass. Calvinists say, let our hearts ascend to heaven. Zwinglians say, the Lord's nowhere to be found, but he's up there someplace, so we'll meditate on that and see what happens. Lutheranism is very unique in that the action is always like this. Heaven actually drops down to earth, on the, on the paten and in the chalice, which then fits into N.T. Wright's third mode of presence, in a sense. God's world intersects and permeates our world, which is the sacramental life, which is precisely what Eugene Peterson is saying here. Now, the problem with Peterson, if there is a problem, is that he's not a Lutheran. So he, he uses the language of uh, representation as opposed to reality. Now, I think that's for a couple of reasons. One is he's trying to sell a book. He's not a Lutheran, but you can see the overtones of a, of a real, of a concrete, tangible presence. But he doesn't say it explicitly like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, he does, in a sense, equate Luther with Calvin, which... In many respects, that's true. I mean, you have to read Calvin as Calvin. And yet, here's one, one of the great things. We have these college forums about four times a year. And the guy who comes from Wheaton College is, he is as Calvinist as Calvinist can be. And I'll tell you what, about 80% of the stuff we talk about, we agree on. It's very good. It's very helpful. Um, it's also helpful that he's a pure-hearted guy and he's not out to get you. But most of the stuff we discuss with him is, is we, can, we can agree upon most of it. However, let me just get back to the word represents um, because I read that as well and I circled it. Yeah, right. And he goes, on, he goes on to use that language of, of representing over and over again. In fact, he says at one point um, on page 209, I'll just read it to you because we'll get there. But he says, it is not just the Last Supper that the Eucharist represents before God, but as Dix writes, the sacrifice of Christ in his death and resurrection. And it makes this present and operative by its effects in the communicants. So that's what you need to remember. It may sound very Roman to your ears to say what comes to the altar is what hung upon the cross. But really, the, the altar is a representation, And I don't mean it represents. It's a presentation, a reality, a re-reality of Golgotha. That's what it is. Exactly. That's what he's saying. 
Okay? So it's not a represents in the sense that you take this and it represents Jesus. It is a representation of the sacrificial Christ. Okay? Because that's what it's all about. The fathers always said, what's on the altar? That which was pierced with nails. Well, here's what Cal- Calvin will say. It's a real presence, but it's a spiritual real presence. The difference is between what, I mean, what does real mean? Um, any good Calvinist would say Jesus is really at the supper, which is why deep down he might just be a Calvinist. Peterson. Any good Calvinist would... Yeah, exactly. You're communing upon Jesus, they'd say. You're communing upon Jesus. Uh, but you're not. But if you said, "Are you eating his flesh and drinking his blood?" They couldn't say that. So don't view the Lord's Supper as the uh, not not like Zwinglians would. Zwinglians, Zwinglians. I always think of Zwingli. What does your husband always say? Zoinks. Zoinks. I always think of that as being. It's very weird how we remember stuff. Zwinglians say the Lord's up in heaven and he's nowhere to be found down here. Let your hearts ascend to heaven, and that's where you can commune on Jesus. Calvinists would say, Jesus might drop down to earth, but he doesn't come with his body. Yeah. I Well, here's the thing. Every Calvinists are just like Lutherans in that they may have a confession, but not every church practices that. I mean, you look around the Missouri Synod, there, not every church would say what hung upon Calvary comes to the altar. But that's what the Bible says, and that's what our confessions say. So it's the same, it's the same way. It's, it's the same argument that you just quoted to me. It's like it, that argument, or not the argument, but that where all the people left him. Yeah, right. Said, how can you do that? Yeah, John 6, said, yeah. I'm not going to explain it to you. This right. is just how it is. It's still that same thing where all of them left. Exactly. You know, where they can't explain. Okay, I'm not going to explain to you molecularly how it happens. Yeah. I'm just telling you that it does. And, it is. And that's where uh, Rome got into trouble with, with defining the presence. That's what transubstantiation is. There's actually, if you read Luther, um, his great treatise on the supper comes in, in his, in his um, I think it's in his Babylonian captivity of the church, where he says, we don't have a problem with transubstantiation. That's not the issue. The issue is not does the bread become something or does the blood beco- or does the wine become something. But anytime you try to define what that change is, that's where you have trouble. So Rome philosophically tries to define the change, transubstantiation. Luther just says, it is what it is. The Lord says it's his body and it is. And how that all occurs, we only know by his word. He speaks and it happens. But to say that there's not a change that it's still bread or that it's still wine, or even this Lutheran bit, which is not Lutheran. In the Catechism, in the explanation, it says, in, with, and under. That is not a Lutheran explanation. That's not Luther either. To explain it away like that and just to say somehow it's, I mean, it's almost like there's this spiritual presence of Jesus, but you've got bread and wine. That's what we know is there, is not faithful to Holy Scripture. Exactly. Right. Don't ask, don't tell. Just is. That's right. Yeah.
Uh, no, the catechism explanation is a fear of Rome at that point. It's a fear of Rome. It's a fear of talking about um, some sort of change in the, in the elements. But if, you know, the, the bottom line is if there's no change, if it, doesn't, if it, if it isn't the body, you're right, is it, does it still taste like bread? Is, does it still smell like bread? If you put it under a microscope, would it still be bread? Yes, it would be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's where he puts himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he never works outside of his means. That's why... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Exactly. The Lord's always been a Lutheran. He always works by means. Can't just... That's right. <laughs> that's right. I got it. Um... Yes, you have to receive the elements, but the elements are not mere bread and not mere wine. Let's go here real quick. Yeah. In our bulletin every week, it does say in the Eucharistic, this is what you were referring to earlier, is that just taking, quoting the catechism? I have nothing further to say. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, let me tell you this. Um, here's the thing. It is a catechetical explanation. In a sense, that's not good because it's an explanation. That's the one thing we said Rome doesn't do well is they try to explain it away. It's not from Luther. It's not from Luther. didn't write that. It's post-Luther. So it's not really, it's not, people all the time say, well, that was Luther's explanation of the supper. It It wasn't. I mean, Luther says, Luther says in volume 35 of his works, he says at one point, just as the bread is changed into the body of Christ and the wine is changed into his blood. And that's later Luther. So that's not like he just walked out of the monastery, Luther. That's not, that's not the same way the catechism explains the Holy Supper in the explanation. You know, there are two parts to the catechism. The first part, which is Luther. The second part, which is guys at CPH who sat down and wrote an explanation. Yeah, it's not from Luther. It's from some, I don't know who wrote it. I couldn't tell you who wrote it. No, <laughs> no he, didn't, he didn't write that. I'm glad I could help. <laughs> I thought it was very helpful that he talks about um, Eucharist in the context of sacrifice. If you look at page 204, This should resonate, especially if you've kind of been, uh, been, listening in, been listening in on Sunday mornings. Page 204, second full paragraph, a priest there. A priest builds a fire under the offering and burns it up. The fire transforms our gift, our lives, into smoke and fragrance that ascend to God. You remember the fire that burns on the altar to consume it? The Hebrew word is noam, which is also the word for beauty. Okay? It's an incarnational presence. Our lives, whether well-intentioned or rebellious, our inadequate and sin-flawed lives are changed before our eyes into what we cannot see. But now here as the priest declares us whole, forgiven, healed, restored, God has used the stuff of our sins to save us from our sins. Now there's a lot going on there. The first thing is, this is part of the reason why we had to burn up your sins when you came to private confession, which was a tremendous success. I think we had almost 50 people in the week, many of whom had never been. So, that's what it's all about. The other thing is this idea, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, about God using the stuff of our sins to save us from our sins. In Numbers 21, 
You remember, they're out in the wilderness, and the snakes come out, and they bite all the people, and people start dying. Do you remember what they have Moses do? Build a cross, build a pole, and put a... He fixes the problem with the problem. And then in John 3, he says to Nicodemus, just as the snake was lifted up on the pole in the wilderness, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. And he fixes the problem with the problem, which is why St. Paul says, Jesus became sin for us. So the problem in the wilderness is the snakes, and he fixes it with the snakes. The problem at the time of Jesus, and ever since then, has been sin, and he fixes the problem with the problem. Jesus becomes sin for us. Okay? Which is why Jesus can use the analogy of the snake in the wilderness. So then Peterson, God has used the stuff of our sins to save us from our sins. All the sins you can conjure up, the Lord plops those on himself at Calvary. I mean, this is, I don't think people always get it when we've said it, but it, it is very true. You can't actually out Jesus. You just can't do it. There's no one in the world that's a greater sinner than Jesus. Because all the sins you can ever imagine have been plopped on Jesus on Good Friday. And as one, I've got a student on Monday nights who said to me, well, if Jesus was the greatest sinner, how was he saved from his sins? And I said, the exact same way you were. He dies for the sins of the world and for the sins of himself. So that's what it's all about. The sacrifice has to be burned up with fire, which is, you know, Luther's great bit where he says... Jesus is the greatest murderer, thief, adulterer. Pick your sin. Jesus is the greatest. And then he talks about Jesus being held up over the flames of hell on the cross. He uses even more graphic language, like he's skewered over the flames of hell. But that's a sacrifice being burned up with fire. Okay? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think there's a distinction that has to be made for the regular hearer. He is, yeah, he's sinless, but once he gets to the cross, he's no longer sinless. I, I thought it started in the garden. What started in the garden? Him taking on the sin. Oh, yeah, I mean, I the, thought it was like a process. the plan started. Oh, in the, I thought you were talking about the Garden of Eden. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. It, well, actually, I'll one-up you. I think it actually starts at his baptism. Because the whole point... I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm just thinking about other times when he's bled, which is why his circumcision is actually the first mark of his passion. That's why you celebrate the day. It's a, the circumcision of Jesus is considered the, a primary feast of Christ in the church here. Fascinating. You know, you'd never expect that. It's always strange when you get up because it's one verse. The reading for the feast of the circumcision of Jesus. A little odd. But that's his passion. So yeah, it starts, in, it starts all the way back. It actually starts at his incarnation when he drops down. Luther says... You can see it very clearly at his baptism because he lines himself up with sinners. 
He's one of them. And then that continues throughout his earthly ministry. And you see it very clearly then when he sets his face to Jerusalem in 951. And he goes to the garden and he bleeds. And here's how you know it. Because he says, take this cup from me. He wants out. And, and if you were here on Sunday and you looked at the, at the crucifix that I actually thought was repulsive. I don't know who, I forget who, who uh, or the crucifixion scene. There looks like there's, it looks like there's terror and horror in his eyes. And of course, if you've been tracking for a couple years, you remember the great line from Nagel is, fear is self-regarding, so fear is sin. And you're saying, how can Jesus be fearful if he's sinless? At that point, he's not. He's the greatest damn sinner who ever walked the face of the earth. But it's actually in his body. It's everything. I mean, as he hangs on the cross, he's, I mean, just imagine this. As he hangs on the cross, he's shamed because he's an adulterer. He's the unfaithful husband. He's the unfaithful wife. He's shamed because he doesn't treat his kids well. He's shamed because he does drugs. He's shamed because of all that, because that's who he is on the cross. And if that's not who he is, then we actually don't have salvation. But to have, you and Vicar Crane would be right. You and Vicar Crane. No, here's the thing. The, but he makes them one with himself. You can't, you can't separate. See, the problem is you can't separate the committing of sins and the, and the actual apprehension of sin. If you commit it, it's yours. If it's yours, it's as though you've committed it. Yeah, did he ever cheat on his spouse? No. But the sin of cheating on your spouse is his. And he experiences it, this is the point, he experiences it as though he's committed it. That's how he experiences it on the cross. He, he's the one who stands in front of a God who's angry with sin. Yeah, but it's, more, but it's more than that. Here's the point, it's more than that. It's not just that he stands in front of God and says, look at me instead of them. He stands there as the one who's committed them. I, I take your point. He didn't actually do it. He didn't steal. He didn't do drugs. Well, no, it's, semant- it's semantics to a point, but a point, at a point, it becomes reality. It becomes reality. Because on the cross, on the cross, he absorbs those sins. And the point is, when he absorbs them, he makes them his own. They're not yours anymore. They're not yours. So we can say, oh, yeah, you know, he became sin, or yeah, they were, they were plopped on him. Or, but they actually, they have to, they have to belong to someone. I mean, that's what sin does. It belongs to someone. So either it belongs to you or it belongs to Jesus. You probably want to put him on Jesus. And let him belong to him just as they would to you. Just as they would to you. I there are like six hands up. I saw them all go up at once. Donna, hit me with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
It is. That, but that's also the promise of the seal of confession. That when someone comes, the reason they're never spoken of again is because when they're forgiven, they're forgotten. They're actually forgotten. Well, no, I would, I would actually say, I mean, part of, part of maturing as a Christian is you get to the point where you can actually begin to forget them. Yeah, he, well, he does forget him. Yeah, exactly. He does forget him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but part of that is, and this is, you know, it's almost, it, it, I will say it's actually divine the way it happens. I, I can't recall any, I can't recall a sin that's been confessed to me. I can't recall it. Because it's as though the Lord works in such a mysterious way that when he forgives it, he allows the past to forget, to forget it as well. Which is why you don't talk about it. And, and you're right, the, tr- the tough part is when someone has sinned against you, then forgetting it. Um, I can remember, well, I wasn't, I would, yeah. My wife's aunt was um, brutally raped and murdered in like 1980, and I can rem- I, and I of course I can't remember then. I can remember discussions with my father-in-law, who was had just was just a pastor at that point, and and his father-in-law, the father of this woman, they I mean the kind of their 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 angst was they couldn't forgive this guy for what he had done. I mean, he, they killed their daughter. Um, and some of the greatest pastoral care he gave was, there are, many, there are many pastors who would say, then you can't go to the supper. You can't forgive him, you can't go to the supper. I frankly completely disagree. Because the way you learn to forgive is by going to the supper. And the way you learn to forget is by going to the supper. And over the course now of, 25 or 30 years it's not as though they've completely forgotten but it doesn't pain them in the same way as it used to even the even the the remembrance of who did it and how it happened doesn't have the same effect that brings out anger and resentment as it used to mm-hmm. yeah right right that's right. Yeah. That's the point, is it should come as freedom. It's a burden to remember that people have duped you. <laughs> I mean, why do you want to remember that kind of stuff? People, people, people get at you all the time. It would be so freeing if you could just say, okay, whatever. That's the truth. That's the truth, actually. And 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 here's the point: if you can't if you can't let go if you can't forget your own sins, you're actually still caught in them. Because part of being forgiven is letting all that go. If you came to confession during uh, Holy Week, at least the people I talked to, most of them I said, "Okay, now you got to leave all that stuff here. That's why you dropped it in the fire. You got to leave all that here. It's a little Easter present for Jesus. Leave all that here." But when you walk back out with them and you continue to remember them and dwell on them, 
it might be a sign that you haven't quite let them go yet. And so the spiritual discipline is to go again and, and maybe the confession the next time is, I can't stop thinking about these sins. I just can't, I can't let them go. But it also is about going to the supper. Well, um, no. It, it, yes, it, yes, there is a difference in maybe how you perceive it. If, and I don't know anything about the guy. I mean, it's something that's very rarely talked about in, in the family. Because it was, talk about a dark day in the family, that was it. Um, and the only time I ever remember talking about it was when he was about to go on parole and they needed like a thousand signatures to get him locked up for the rest of his life. And they got him and he's, he's in jail. Um, I don't think he ever apologized. I would highly doubt he ever apologized. Yeah, and would that have helped? Maybe, but you know there are a lot of people that didn't apologize at the cross, and Jesus still says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And that's that's the mark of someone who's very spiritually mature. When you can, when someone has really gotten after you, and you can say, "I forgive you," it, it's almost unreal that people can do that. But that's where the Lord wants us. And you find that very rarely. I mean, I can think of very few people in my life who have been destroyed by other people and who can say, I forgive you. It's just hard to do. But it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of Jesus. What else? Jen, you had a question. All right. I just feel myself slipping further and further into oblivion regarding the whole crucifixion yeah. and death. And I'm like, why did you? Because I have a first grader now, so I'm going to have a lot of these questions coming up because I feel like I really got to wrap my brain around mm-hmm. this yet. Mm-hmm. Because despite how long I've been in the church and been going to Bible study, I still don't get it. Mm-hmm. I, don't under, I, I don't understand. Well, like what happened to everybody in the Old Testament before Jesus died? Where are they? Were they not saved? Were they. And, Right. Yes, right. No, 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 it's not, uh, believe me, it's not ignorance. <laughs> I saw it actually. She brought it to show me. Yes. Welcome to my life. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. 
No, here, here, well, think about this. Yes, think about this, and then there could be a sidebar sometime. The way the Lord works is by always setting out to make wrongs right. That's all he's about, making wrongs right. This is why I said the, the, one, of the quests, one, of the, one of the desires every person has, whether or not you're a Christian, is justice. Everyone wants wrongs to be made right. It's, it's innate to human beings. And the Lord's the same way. So if you can just begin to think, he always wants wrongs to be made right. And as Peterson says, he uses the thing to fix the thing. Then that, then that might help you understand at least the basics of why he chose a man, why the man had to come, why the man had to die, why the man died even on the place of the skull. This was the Good Friday sermon. It's not accidental that Jesus dies in the place of the skull. Were you here Good Friday? Yeah. Okay, good. That's Adam's skull that's there. That's what the church has always said. Because he's about making wrongs right. If you can start with that, everything else will begin to make sense. If that's his main goal is to make wrongs right, everything else makes sense. But that would have been by way of force. As what? He could have. <laughs> he could have. I okay. I agree. He could have. He also could have like shot down like a hot air balloon from heaven with a bunch of grace that poured out over the sides. And I understand. Yeah. Well, and the other, and the, oh, go ahead. No, no, I mean that God would come at a particular time. To earth, right. And what, what, what was God's purpose right. in having these people without Jesus for so long? Right. And, but, but it gets back, yeah, it, exactly. It gets back to wrongs being made right. And also, and this is something I didn't say, but I should have said, he is all about relationships. Which is part of the reason why he didn't send you don't have a relationship with a goat. I mean, you may have killed a goat in the Old Testament, but they didn't live in your house. They didn't, you didn't talk to them. You didn't care about their soul. You didn't any of that. But humans do with other humans. Humans do with other humans. Which is why even when you love someone, this is just, it's very philosophical, but when you love someone, you actually, by loving them, making them you make them a part of yourself. Your love extends to them in such a way that you wrap them up in your own life. You and Steve are one because you have love for each other. It's the same way with the Lord, which is why even if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen into sin, this is what the early church always said, and I think it probably is right, he still would have sent his son. Not to die, but because he can't help but have relationship with you in a concrete, tangible, human way. Because all we know in the garden is there was, a, there was God who created and they could speak with him, but it's not as though they saw him in the flesh. He didn't necessarily look like Adam and Eve. So he's going to send his son anyways. Well, they did, but whether or not he had a body and flesh, I don't know. Yeah, but the Lord can walk in mysterious ways. You're, you're my favorite hymn, and he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. I, last time I checked, the Lord wasn't walking. I mean, he wasn't walking next to me, but yes, he's, metaphorically, he's walking with me. 
<laughs> that's well, the people in the Old Testament are in heaven because of the lamb and the dove and all that. that yeah, those, were, those are not just sacrifices. Those are sacraments. That's their way to heaven. And yeah, and and the here and this will, yeah. Here's the cross. Here's Adam. Here's you. Here's an animal. I'm just talking to like a blank wall right now. Here's a chalice. Here's how it works. Jen, Good Friday is this, is, this is the center of history. This is the center of history. This event flows backwards this way. Remember, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's eschatological, meaning it has no time. The problem with, with you and with me, we define our time in terms of a watch. It's not the way the Lord defines time. Time is not chronological. Okay, it's not chronological. Here's his, here's his cross. It pours back into these animals. That's an animal. Back into these animals. And it pours forward into the chalice and onto the host. Adam and Eve get, sa- get saved the exact same way that you get saved today. The cross is applied. The cross is applied. That's all it's about. Same thing. Just comes through various means. In the Old Testament, the means are animals. <laughs> In the, in, the, in the New Testament, in, the, in now where we live, the means are altar, pulpit, font. It's the same Jesus, just applied in a variety of different ways. That's how the Lord's worked it out. So Luther then, in his Genesis commentary, says all the Old Testament sacrifices are sacraments. You take the body and blood, they slaughtered a lamb. That's how he works. So the crucifixion, that's why Peterson says the crucifixion is at the center of history. Revelation. One more thing. Holly, go ahead. Exodus 24. This is actually great. People, yeah, people forget this. They always say, paint the door frames. And so we paint all these door frames with the kids. But remember, he goes on to say, slaughter the lamb and eat it. They have to eat the slaughtered lamb. Jesus is the Paschal lamb. You eat the slaughtered lamb. One more. This is so good. Here's the thing. Do you know where he... Yeah. Do you remember? Do you, yes, it is. Do you remember? Here's the thing. You know when Abraham sees Jesus' day? Do you remember? Here's the thing. When he comes back from battle, he meets the priest who has the priest, Melchizedek, who has no beginning and no ending, and he offers up bread and wine. That is like Melchizedek. Melchizedek, now listen very carefully, is 
You're like my wife, man. This is how we play games at my house. She just shouts stuff out. Hey, Vernus! <laughs> Melchizedek is Jesus. It's not a picture. It is. So when Abraham says, when Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, you remember what happens. He meets Melchizedek, who is Jesus, and then what happens right afterwards, he sits down with the three men, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who appeared to be like angels of the gods, and they ate together. He saw Jesus. All right. Anything else? Speak now. All right, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right.